Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Actus Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. Actus Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, August 9th, marks our 74th show. So my name, of course, is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists. I'm back after a short absence where my colleagues uh, briefly hijacked the Actus Radio studio <laughs> for a great show on our Actus Local Chapter updates. But I'm back here again in my usual seat for today's program, which is a day in the life of a physician advisor. And I'd like to introduce um, our indus industry guest and physician advisor, uh, said physician advisor right now. So his name is Howard Rodenberg. Uh, Howard's an MD, MPH, and is a, also a CCDS and is the adult physician advisor for CDI at Baptist Health in Jacksonville, Florida. An emergency physician by training, and as I learned, he's still an emergency physician. His multifaceted career includes time spent as an associate professor at the University of Florida, an EMS medical director, health department director for Volusia County, Florida, Daytona Beach, and the state of Kansas, working with NASA, clinical practice of emergency medicine, and of course with CDI. Howard has authored multiple publications and book chapters and given presentations around the world. Um, as you can see from his photo, that he does have great hair for his age. <laughs> he's modest to a fault, uh, mostly, and he's got a nice blog, which I'm going to be talking about maybe a little bit today. Um, he blogs irreverently at Writing with Scissors at blogspot.com, and I'm pleased to have him on. So uh, welcome, Howard. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. All right. Howard, we met, I believe, for the first time at the Actus Conference just recently, and uh, it was great talking with you there, and I'm thrilled to have you on uh, as our special guest today. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be fun. All right. Well, as I always do, I'm going to start by uh, sharing a poll question related to today's topic. I ask you to choose the option that best suits you, and we will um, come back to these results in just a few minutes. So, um, again, so the poll reads, is your organization's physician advisor dedicated to CDI, or does he or she share other responsibilities? So your options are they, they, we have one and they're dedicated to CDI. Uh, they have other responsibilities. Um, too many to list, of course, but one I put there, is, which is common, is case management. Could be other responsibilities as well. Um, or you don't have a physician advisor. Perhaps you don't know, maybe you're new to, new to your uh, hospital or uh, don't work directly with them or not applicable, realizing not everyone is in an acute care hospital. So again, is your organization's physician advisor dedicated to CDI or do they share other responsibilities? Are they dedicated? Do they have other responsibilities? Do you not have one at all? Don't know or not applicable? All right, thanks for entering your results. I'm gonna go ahead, close this out, and of course, we will return to the poll um, after our interview. So as I mentioned, uh, our guest today is Howard Rodenberg. Howard, again, welcome to the program, and thank you very much for being a part of Actus Radio. It's my pleasure. All right, 
I thought we could start by maybe just having you describe your current role as CDI, Physician Advisor of Baptist Health, and and based on the title of the show, you know, what, what does a typical day in the life of uh, Dr. Rodenberg look like? Well, there, there really is no typical day. My current role kind of changes from day to day. Pardon me. And honestly, I think that's probably how it should be in this job. I think most folks are familiar with the fact that at most job descriptions at the end, it says 5% other duties is required. And I think as a CDI physician advisor, that really ought to be 75% because the exact duties, I think, are less important than trying to figure out a way to get to that goal. I'm just real fortunate that Baptist Healthcare gives me the flexibility and leverage to advance in whatever direction seems most promising. A lot of what I do is pretty much what you would anticipate. I work with the CDI staff to clarify clinical terminology and discuss difficult diagnosis. I go to meetings with physician groups to talk about CDI issues. I'm part of the escalation process when physicians don't understand the CDI program. I do participate in the denial and appeal process. I work to defend our physicians' assessments from the third-party payers. We are currently in the process of trying to be integrated into the onboarding process for new physicians within our system, and that includes outpatient physicians, hospitals, new inpatient uh, physicians. We're starting to look at how we interact with mid-level providers, recognizing that at least in the surgical specialty, that's where most of the documentation happens rather than the surgeons themselves. And we're also starting to look at how we might approach some issues with outpatient CDI, and specifically because of my background as an emergency physician, how to involve the ER in that. Mm. The one thing that, that may be unique about my position is we are a multiple hospital system. So we have four adult hospitals with about 1,300 beds. We have one pediatric hospital. Our administrative offices are located at a separate site. So I have a lot of geographic diversity in my day, which is actually kind of fun. It's especially really good when you have a meeting like 11 o'clock and two of our hospitals are about 200 yards from the beaches. So it makes it real easy to schedule lunch at the beach. That's a nice perk of the job here. That's not, that sounds uh, tough. <laughs> well, you know, you make do. Sometimes you just got to eat the crab at noon. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of other things here that I think we're doing somewhat uniquely when I talk to some of my peers. Um, one of the nice things about Baptist is it's a very open institution. So I've been able to meet with the individual hospital presidents, with the CFO of the organization, with the CNO, the chief nursing officer, you know, chief medical officer for the entire organization. And because it's very open and very welcoming, I've never been told anybody I can't talk to. And everybody has offered, you know, interest in what we're doing and opportunities for collaboration. So I'm very lucky in that regard. The other nice thing here is there are two full-time physicians to utilization management. And I think they have a good recognition that probably, you know, 80% of utilization management is dependent upon CDI. You know, your, your link to say is dictated by what's written in the chart. So they've been incredibly supportive, and we have sort of an informal group of administrative physicians who get together for lunch, you know, once a month, and we also talk on the phone. And that's been invaluable to me as somebody coming from the outside to kind of let me know how the how the process works. Gotcha. That's pretty awesome. Um, you know, I, I uh, lot to talk about there, Howard. Lot to unpack and. You know, you've, you've sort of uh, touched on a few things related to our poll question about working with some folks that are in utilization management, et cetera. But, you know, I mean, uh, maybe we could just start with, you know, I, I know a large part of your role from the sounds of it is physician engagement. Of course, that's sort of the uh, the age old question that remains very relevant and, uh, and problematic for a lot of CDI programs is engaging physicians. So, you know, as a physician yourself, someone who's still in, um, in medicine, et cetera, what, what techniques do you find most effective uh, in engaging physicians? Maybe what, what, what has worked well uh, for you in your personal experience? 
Well, I think the thing is you have to meet physicians where they live. They're not going to come into CDI world and they're not going to understand the things that are important in CDI world and, and ICD-10 land. Those are the two little amusement parks where we live, right? ICD-10 land and, and coding world. Um, that's especially true in a community hospital setting such as ours. You know, we don't have the luxury of of owning all of our physicians as you would in a multi-specialty clinic where the hospital owns the clinic. We also don't have the advantage with the exception of our pediatric hospital of being a teaching hospital where your residents are fairly captive and so you can get to them. And so part of the difficulty that we have, and I would suspect most community hospitals do, in outreach to physicians is simply finding them. You know, the meetings of departments and individual groups are fairly irregular. The attendance is kind of spotty. The agenda is fairly limited. And if we believe the advertising research that says that you need to hit somebody with a message seven times before they actually get it stuck in their head, you know, if you're only seeing a physician every three to four months or so, it makes it incredibly difficult if all of your contact is related to the queries. Uh, one of the talks I really liked at the ACTIS conference this year in Las Vegas with the folks at the University of Michigan who recognized that the EMR is really the only point of contact you have with every physician on a daily basis and looking at ways to leverage that. So part of the issue with physician engagement is simply finding them. And again, in a community hospital, especially a decentralized large one, I think you do have certain disadvantages as compared with other settings. That being said, like I mentioned, you've got to find physicians where they live. And the reasons we think CDI is important for quality measures and accuracy and coding and physician profiles and hospital reimbursement, to be frank, that really doesn't enter the physician's mindset. I mean, you know, we talk about physician profiles, but I can't tell you the last person I knew who got fired from a job because of a physician profile. People get fired because they can't get along or they can't handle the workload or they just don't know what they're doing. But, you know, nobody gets raked over the coals for accuracy, for, you know, documenting poorly for accuracy and coding or those things that we talk about. But when you listen to what doctors talk about, what they talk about is how much hassle they're getting and how much hassle they're getting from the government and from insurance companies and administration. Yeah, it's when they're not talking about golf or cars or who's divorcing who and why the alimony is worth it, those sorts of things. So if we're going to talk to physicians, or when I talk to physicians, I start with the premise of, I know you guys are getting hassled. And my job is to get, get people like me off their back. Um, and that's kind of where this ER background that I have comes in. One of the things ER docs are very good at doing is we're not detailed people, but we're very good at finding the six or seven things that you need to look out for, helping you to isolate those and playing the odds with those six or seven things. So in our work here, I've been able to do some data analysis. I found six or seven things, and things that would be fairly obvious to most people in the CDI world, but things we could document better, things we could do with specificity. And so when I talk to the docs, I say, look, if you can remember these six or seven things for me, I'm going to solve 70% of your problem. 70% of your queries go away. 70% of your utilization management queries go away. 70% of your quality issues go away. And that's actually a message that they respond to because you're, you're contributing to, to what they see as an impediment in their life. The other thing you have to acknowledge is that, you know, when they go into the queries, queries are hassles, and they perceive them as hassles. So you've got to try to simplify them, streamline them, make it as easy as you can. And again, this is where I think that, that ER background comes in, because when I'm in ER, working in the ER and I call somebody at 3 in the morning, I got about 15 seconds to convey my message before they hang up on me. So I try and structure the queries like I've got my 15 seconds. When I engage physicians, it's like I've got my 15 seconds, so I try and be as, as focused and succinct as I can to get the message across. And then the other thing that I think is important that you already alluded to is the fact that it is important, unless somebody's been in an institution 40 years and is very well known, 
I think it is important that people still engage to some degree in the practice of medicine because I think even in my time when I was a state and county health department director, the one thing you do to lose credibility is you don't see patients because the last thing you want is for somebody to say, when was the last time you saw a patient? You say it's a year ago and they automatically file you away as being totally out of touch. Gotcha. Some great stuff there and, and, and agreed. I, I like the idea of physician profiles and and uh, healthcare transparency. I know we're not there yet, and it sounds like physicians still aren't responding to that, but um, these other areas well, are certainly and, very practical. And, yeah, and to be frank, and I, you know, to go off, off your question a little bit, to be frank, they're not going to respond to it because the system doesn't respond to it yet. Again, nobody feel, no physician necessarily feels any sense of, of fear or intimidation because of these things. Um, and we don't want to promote that environment, but unless they do, you got to hit them where they live. And where they live is with the hassle factor. So you have to appeal to that side rather than the side that might appeal to us as CDI professionals. Gotcha. All right. Let's um, let's change gears a little bit and maybe talk about um, uh, a diagnostic issue. You you mentioned you have perhaps some iconoclastic or a little differing views about a problem diagnosis, which we're all familiar with, of course, in CDI, sepsis. Um, could you explain yeah. a, little, a little bit further uh, for our audience what your feelings yeah. on that diagnosis? I don't, I don't know about iconoclast other than if you want to get into the Star Trek versus Star Wars argument because everyone knows <laughs> Star, Trek, Star Wars is fiction and Star Trek is reality. But other than that, um, <laughs> I, you know, I started out with this whole sepsis thing last year trying to find some happy medium between sepsis 2 and sepsis 3. Uh, because I didn't want it to be in a situation where we, our clinicians were doing sepsis 3 um, and our quality folks were doing sepsis 2 because that's the CMS measure. And so I initially approached this to see if there was a way to put them together. Severe sepsis and sepsis 2 was equivalent to sepsis under sepsis 3. And unfortunately, a chart review showed that that's just not the case. So they really are two different worlds. And meanwhile, those who have followed the literature are familiar that the sepsis world is sort of dividing into two armed camps. You know, one is CMS, who is firmly on the side of sepsis, too, is not going to change anything there. And one is the third-party payers who are going to extract every last ounce they can and are fully on board with sepsis three as of you know three hours after the article was published last last year. Um, clinically, I'm more of a sepsis two guy, with the caveat that not everybody who meets criteria. Uh, necessarily has sepsis, and I think you, you, you can't be a stickler on that and say that everybody meets criteria on sepsis, because clinically, that's just not the case. You're going to get people who meet criteria, they look great, and you're going to just charge them home. But where I think my thinking is a little bit different is I truly believe that before you make a decision for an institution, there's an economic model that can guide you. And so if you accept that we've got these two intransient enemies, with CMS and sepsis 2, and the private pairs on sepsis 3, Part of what you need to incorporate in your decision process about what you're going to use at your institution is what your payer mix is. And so if your payer mix is 80% 80% Medicare and 20% private payers, well, it doesn't make much sense to go to sepsis 3 because you're going to exclude yourself from a ton of revenue. Um, will you lose some on the third-party payers? Yeah, you or, excuse me, on the private payers. Yeah, you probably will, but you'll keep that larger chunk. On the other hand, if it's reverse, if it's 80% third-party payers, you know what? You may as well go to sepsis 3 because you're going to lose on the sepsis 2, and the chances are that people who have sepsis 3 will meet something in the sepsis 2 criteria anyway. So I think that's where I differ a little bit in not saying this is purely a clinical argument. You know, if you had, if there was clearly a preponderance of evidence one way or the other, um, 
then of course you go with the preponderance of evidence, but that, that's not what we've got here. And so I do think when you've got these two sides, which are both dug in, neither is compromising. Part of how you make your decision is, is based on an economic model as well as a clinical model. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very practical uh, approach to it. Appreciate you sharing some thoughts on that. Um, let's see, we got a couple more questions I want to ask and not a ton of time, but maybe we can talk a little bit about you know, you, you've you've had some success in this role, and and you've got some thoughts about what what it takes to be a good physician advisor. Maybe you could talk a little bit about. I think our poll results will bail out uh, bear out in just a few minutes that not everyone has a physician advisor, um, isn't sure what to look for in a candidate. So perhaps um, you could offer some suggestions or advice on um, hiring or part full time physician advisor and what really what to look for in a candidate. Well, I guess there's a couple things, um, and I think the biggest thing has to do with with attitude, and that that's in a couple of ways. The first is that there's a, a difference between somebody who has an attitude of I'm friendly, I'm outgoing, you know, I like people, we sing and we hold hands, we sing kumbaya, and a person who can actually do that and communicate, because those are two totally different skills. So you have to find somebody who can communicate, who can do those encapsulated sound bites, and I think that's very important. Um, the other thing about attitude is you have to figure out how people are going to approach this job. Um, you know, there are a lot of people, and I, I will put myself in this group, who sometimes look at administrative jobs as a way to slow down. I mean, I did years of doing 15, 12-hour night shifts a month, and I will freely admit I really enjoy being a daytime person. There's these concepts called sunrise and sunset I wasn't familiar with before, but now I'm learning. Uh, that being said, that doesn't mean this is a job that slows you down. And I think many physicians may look at these jobs as an opportunity to slow down as opposed to transition into a different line of work. And I think it's really important to, you know, for a CDI program to figure out what your physician advisor's motivation is. If the motivation is I'm done with practice, I'm going to sit behind a desk and sign some papers, you know, a few hours a day. That's not going to cut it. So I think the, the expectations for the physician really need to be upfront about this is a full-time job. This is a however many FTE job. And here's your responsibility so they don't understand this is just something to retire at. Uh, but it is something that requires active engagement, a positive attitude, communication skills. So I, I think that's very crucial um, in, in looking at a candidate is what, are their, what is their motivation and does that match what you need from the program? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, you know, Howard, at this point, I will switch over to our uh, back to our poll question, and again, pull that up. But I'll I'll, I'll incorporate a question that I got from our audience about um, CDI sort of wanting to get a physician advisor, and um, they have someone on staff who's mostly hired to work with case management and length of stay, and sort of any ideas you might have on that. But let's let's um let's go ahead and pull up our poll question that we uh, asked about physician advisors. So uh, you should be seeing this at this time. Again, we asked folks: um, Is your organization's physician advisor dedicated to CDI, or do they share other responsibilities? So seven uh, percent have a dedicated physician advisor to CDI. Again, this is with about 500 folks reporting. Fifty-five uh, percent say um, they have a physician advisor, but he or she has other responsibilities, perhaps including case management. Uh, 30% do not have a physician advisor um, in our audience. 3% don't know. 
and for 4%, it's not applicable. So maybe I'll um, ask you, Harb, what you think of these, and, and could you address that question? We, we One question we did get during the show was um, someone who has physician advisors, but they're pretty much full-time in, in case management. They're looking for advice on getting them into CDI. Uh, well, as far as the poll results, I'm I'm actually kind of surprised that so many don't have a physician advisor of any kind. I mean, I wouldn't have expected a huge number of full time, but I would have I would have thought that most programs would at least have you know some physician advisor. And so certainly, I right. advise those programs to get one, because again, unfortunately, we live in a hierarchical medical society. We can talk about collaboration all day, but the fact is, the hierarchy still exists, and there are doctors who will not talk to anybody except doctors. And so I think the only way that programs really going to move forward, it doesn't matter how many pieces of chocolate you give them on the floor, some docs are just going to need to talk to a doctor. That being said, the specific question about doing case management, I think it, it depends on the size of the institution. I think it depends on whether the institution is decentralized or centralized. Um, for example, I think it's a lot easier to do at a teaching hospital where your residents are captive, and we can talk more about that later. Um, but I do think because there is so much overlap, and I don't think anybody here realized how much overlap there was until I came on board. And not that there's anything special about me, but I'm bringing some, you know, some, uh, some more activity to it. And we're starting to realize just how much cross-pollination there is between utilization management and CDI. So I think it depends on volume. It depends on the institution size. But it is a pretty nice match. And I think it would be reasonably easy to have somebody who's dedicated to utilization management to teach them the basic CDI skills. Now, will they spend as much time with it as somebody doing full-time CDI or dedicated to CDI? Probably not. Will they be as effective at it? Probably not. Uh, but there is an awful lot of cross-pollination uh, cross there, so I think that certainly can be done within the limits of the size of the system and the workload that you're, that you're asking. Gotcha. Yeah, thanks again for the insight. Interesting, again, that you mentioned 30% don't have a physician advisor. That's a good uh, starting point for folks that uh, you shared some great insight. I'm, I'm going to, after the show, Howard, you've written up some nice thoughts on um, some um, helpful suggestions or takeaways for folks uh, for physician advisors. And I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to share those on the website. Uh, done some nice writing here. I encourage folks again to check out your blog as well. Uh, really interesting, fun, um, lighthearted blog, but with some good tips and takeaways as well. Um, all right. So at this point, we're going to go ahead and switch to our um, in the news segment pull up a news article here. Uh, again, In the News is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession and to ACTUS. Today, I'd like to discuss a recent article covered right here on our own website, actus.org, entitled, CMS Seeks Feedback on Changing the E&M Billing Guidelines. This caught my attention. Um, you know, we, we have two sets of E&M guidelines. Um, 1995 and 1997, providers can choose which one to follow, follow currently, but they have to choose one or the other. They can't mix and match. Um, and they really, you know, I, I know not all of our audience might be familiar with E&M. Um, physicians would be, probably many coding professionals would be, but, you know, there's really three components to selecting an appropriate level, history of present illness, uh, physical exam and medical decision making, those are, have corresponding CPT codes that physicians use for professional billing. 
a lot of overlap actually with with CDI, and we have a lot of many of our members um, are really big on stressing the connection with you know what we call hospital CDI, you know, getting the DRG right or the HCC right or whatever metric you use, but it also really applies to uh, physicians E&M billing. Um, so these are you know now two decade old guidelines. Again, 95, 97. CMS has has begun a process of of potentially updating these guidelines. They're asking for feedback right now. Um, so if you go to the website, this is linked here uh, on a CMS press release. Uh, they're talking about how they're soliciting they're soliciting comments from folks on how to better align E&M coding um, and documentation with the current practice of medicine. You know, a lot has changed in the last 20 years, especially with the EMRs and how physicians document. Um, and CMS realizes that and is looking for feedback. So there is a mechanism here for uh, submitting your public comments. It's a lot to go through on the, the call today, but it's pretty easy to do. Um, the CMS links to these proposed rule here and within that rule you can um, there's an email address etc to send your uh, comment to CMS and I, I encourage our members to do this um, it's very important that you know CMS has these mechanisms and wants to get feedback and they do take it into consideration and we've commented here at Actus on proposed rules in the IPPS and have seen our comments addressed directly or indirectly within within rules so um, Maybe I'll ask you, Howard, you know, just to comment briefly on this article. Um, you know, what what are your thoughts, if any, on the current E&M guidelines? Do, do you ever use these in your discussions with physicians, improving physicians' professional billing while they're, you know, helping the hospital, quote unquote, with uh, with their documentation? Well, I guess I have to say up front that that's not someplace we've gone right now. There's a separate, uh, different individual groups here do their own billing. So we're sort of focusing on the you know, hospital-owned practices and the hospital setting now. That being that's said, right. I wind up doing this when I practice ER, and I have to do my own E&M coding. And the brief answer is these absolutely need revision. I mean, these were done back in the paper and pencil days. And so if you documented something, there was a thought process that went with it because you had to read the information, digest it in some way, and then document it down. Um, right now, we live in a cut-and-paste world, and things automatically flow over, things cut and paste, and so things show up in the record without any particular physician engagement. And so to try for CMS, and I understand where they're coming from, from, they, from, from their standpoint, why in the world should they give credit for a thought process for, uh, for some intellectual activity for something that the physician doesn't even engage in, it just flows into the chart. So, you know, they were great. They were products of their time that provided us ways to document what was going on, to standardize billing, to do audits. It was great. I've got no objection to them. But in this cut and paste world where things just flow, up, flow over, show up in the medical record, I think they absolutely need revision. Now, it's probably easier said than done. Uh, but yeah, I absolutely endorse that effort, and I certainly would encourage people to submit their comments. All right, sounds good. Okay, let's um, let's go ahead and wrap up here with our last segment, Actus Update. Uh, Actus Update is a regular segment uh, bringing you the latest updates on what's going on inside the the walls of Actus. Uh, so today, I'd like to remind our members about a, a new free resource that is available to you on Actus.org. Um, it's a recorded webinar documentation training for hospital residents. Um, we didn't get into residents 
today. Maybe I'll have you talk about it a little bit, uh, Howard, here. But, you know, just uh, we, we, we uh, did a free webinar for folks on July 19th. Um, Laurie Prescott, who is our CDI um, education director here, is responsible for developing and lead instructor for our Actors Boot Camp line shared some of her best practices and teaching strategies for hospital residents, which are uh, often an unused but important link in the, in the documentation process, and uh, sort of the, some of the challenges with that population and new residents, um, and when to time the training, and what to teach them to get the most um, value in, in, in what's a limited time in the busy life um, of a hospital resident. So. That's available again here on the Actus website. Would encourage would encourage you to check it out. Um, it was a live program, but again, the recording is posted right here on the website. You can listen to it at, at your leisure. That is under the uh, resource section. So if you go to the resource library here and then videos, uh, you will find it. Um, so again, if you haven't checked out some of these resources in our resources library, please do so. I recommend it. This is. Uh, just the latest. So maybe um, again, Howard, I'll turn over to you briefly. Did you get a chance to watch this webinar? Do you have any advice I, or experience with training hospital residents at all? Yeah, I did. I did watch the webinar, and I thought it was very valuable. Um, and I was envious because, again, one of the advantages teaching hospitals have is that that they know where their documents are. You know, in a community hospital, you have to go hunt them down. In a teaching hospital, you know where they are because they're going to be doing rounds. They're going to be doing them at set times and set places. And so it's an incredible advantage for teaching hospitals. Uh, as noted, residents do most of the documenting, so they really are your target audience. So I would encourage folks to look at the webinar. It was valuable and find a way to access their residents if they have some, because it's, it's a great resource and it's an easy resource to use. All right, great. I'm glad you uh, found some value in it and enjoyed it. All right, you know what? We're about at the top of the hour. This flew by. Really appreciate it, Howard. Uh, Great guest, and um, looking forward to maybe having you on again in the future. That's and, my pleasure. Uh, you know, it, it was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that will do it for today's edition of Actus Radio. So I just want to say that we'll be back next week. And that's right, we'll be back next week, not two weeks from now, but with a special show entitled, So You Want to Speak at the Actus Conference. Um, so this show is designed to help prospective speakers submit complete and full abstracts that have the best chance being selected by our 2018 conference committee. This is something that um, we wanted to do uh, after the last few conferences. You know, we get some great abstracts from folks. An abstract is just a fancy name for the speaker application that comes in that we put out, um, ask you to fill out. You know, most of our speakers at the Actus Conference um, are volunteers from our membership or the broader CDI profession, um, and we have a process for that. Uh, you know, some, to be honest, our conference committee only has the uh, application to look at when they select speakers. So this show is really about how to put together a really good um, application and have the best chance of being selected if you are interested in presenting at the Actus Conference. Believe it or not, we're coming up on our um, speaker application period, and it'll be open for about three to four weeks. And uh, so this program next week is is really to help focus on that process. Uh, but as always, if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, what you'd like to see, please send me an email. You can get me at bmurphy at actus.org. Again, that'll do it for today's 
uh, Actus Radio. We'll see you back here next week, and take care, everyone.